Hi there, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm working in hostile conditions at the moment because the builders are in next door. And so there's a combination of music, whistling and incredibly loud thumps, which have subsided for the moment. So I'm going to give it a go. But um, if it gets noisy again, we may have to you know, reschedule. So first post of the week was links I liked, as always. Um, <clears throat> the one I'd like to point to this week is actually a really nice post from Malala. You know, uh, Malala Yousafzai, who's kind of Latter-day Saint, uh, the girl who got shot by the Taliban for advocating for girls' education. And so I was just really amused when she decided to have a go at her husband, Asamalik, Malik, because he leaves his smelly socks lying around. Um, so um, she said... She tweeted, found socks on sofa, asked Malik Asa if they were his. He said the socks were dirty and I can put them away. So I took them and put them in the bin. And I, and I just, it's had 1.4 million views, that, that tweet. Um, uh, Asa Malik is also pretty dab hand at, at um, social media. He, he, I think he represents the Pakistani cricket team. So he had a poll on whether this was the right thing to do. And 60% of respondents said, yes, you should throw them in the bin if he leaves his smelly socks lying around. I just thought that was so human and, and you know, really nice. So um, props to um, uh, Malala for, for sharing what we've all experienced from one end or another. <clears throat> Next post, much more serious. Um, five types of humanitarian influence. And this is a piece from Hugo Slim which is first posted on the Humanitarian Law and Policy blog. I just loved it. Hugo, uh, um, I've been working with him over the last year. We've become quite you know, good friends. I love the way he writes and thinks. And I just think he's, a, he's, he's, a, he's an original. Um, and I thought this piece was great. So let me just oh, uh, read it out to you if I can. I've just lost the screen. There we go. Influence is typically conceived as a subtle form of power that is indirect, unconscious or deliberately hidden. Influencers are often off stage rather than on it, whispering behind a curtain, appearing in dreams or using magic of some kind. Influence tends to work gradually, seeping gently into us like a slowly rising tide. And of course, influence can be both malign and good, right or wrong, pulling us towards justice or injustice. This sense of subtlety means influence has usually been understood as a soft power, which is best applied with great intelligence. Influence is the opposite of direct force and its hard, coercive power compelling us to change against our will. Instead, influence is suggestive and psychological. It is something to which we succumb rather than submit. It charms us like a spell. And influencers are more likely to wield a wand than a gun, more often seen piloting a YouTube channel than a tank. In ancient times, it was astrology which most clearly expanded a theory of influence. Modern scientists dispute astrology, but they still recognise a wide range of subtle forces that influence who we are, what we believe and what we do, especially perhaps cultural influence, social influence, religious influence, political influence and, of course, self-interest. These forces flow within us and around us to make us think and act in particular ways. When they're combined, we talk about people living under the influence of a particular worldview, mindset or paradigm. An important part of all these forms of influence is our tendency to copy other people. Human, be human beings are extremely mimetic. 
We imitate each other and like to live as a herd as well as individuals. Strongly influenced by a shared identity and a desire to belong, we think collectively. We become locked into groupthink, ideology, narrative and imaginaries, which are full of important symbols, myths, heroes and villains that explain the world to us. Influencing someone therefore involves entering their ideology, narrative and imagination to edit them, extend them, disrupt them, change them or replace them. And it usually means asking people to copy someone else. This is superb. I mean, I, I've never read anything like this about influencing. But not all influencing is unseen, whispered and discreet. Much modern influencing is also extremely loud and in your face. It can sometimes be explicitly pressurising in a way that is much closer to hard power. Humanitarian diplomacy, campaigning and advocacy use a full spectrum of influencing that plays softly to people's unconscious desires and anxieties and also uses pressure and protest to directly challenge anti-humanitarian behaviour. And then Hugo, who humanitarian influencing is his thing, comes up with a typology, five types of influence. There are perhaps five enduring types of influence which have been practised for thousands of years and still form the essential repertoire of humanitarian influencing today. First, public prophecy. This is a direct public challenge which typically predicts a terrible future tomorrow as a consequence of bad behaviour today. Prophecy uses scandal, outrage, shaming and public attack to target people in power. It accuses them of acting unjustly, ruining the world and causing disaster. The Jewish prophets of the 8th century BCE, like Amos and Hosea, pioneered this kind of influencing. They dramatically accused the kings, priests and people of Israel of greed, godlessness and oppressing the poor. The result they predicted would be their abandonment by God, the destruction of their capital Jerusalem and the occupation of their lands. Prophetic influencing caused leaders and citizens to turn away from their current disastrous behaviour and take a new path fast before it is too late. Its very loud and public appeals outside the room are often used to escalate and leverage simultaneous government negotiations behind closed doors. Today's humanitarians can be seen to use this kind of influencing strategy on many issues. Most obvious today is very graphic and prophetic descriptions of the humanitarian consequences of climate change being used to emphasise the huge threat of climate related disasters. Recent humanitarian success in securing the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons used similar loud prophetic campaigning to call states to turn away from the catastrophic use of these weapons. Desperate, desperate times are seen to demand desperate measures as humanitarians aim to shock people into action. Second type of uh, a narrative, type of influencing, intimate storytelling. A more personal and indirect influencing approach uses, uses stories as analogies, allegories or parables to resonate with the best part of a person. In this approach, a story works to make a person accuse themselves and reminds them of the right thing to do. In Islam, the Hadith is full of stories in which the life and words of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, are used to influence our behaviour by gently reminding us of what is right and good. One hadith tells the story of a rich date merchant who had concentrated entirely on doing business all his life. In his will, he instructed the town elders that his great warehouse full of dates should be emptied and given to the poor. To prove the task had been honourably done, the elders asked the prophet to check that the store was now empty. The prophet inspected the warehouse and found everything gone except for one small date on the floor which had been squashed underfoot and left to rot. Why did you not distribute this one too? asked the prophet. The elders explained it was damaged and dirty, so they had left it on the floor. 
The prophet then picked up the trodden date and said to them all, if this rich man had only distributed this small damaged date to the poor while he was alive, it would have been far better than giving all his dates to them when he was dead. I must confess I don't quite understand the point of that parable, but it's, it's interesting. A famous biblical example of this type of influencing is the ancient Jewish story of King David and Nathan, his prophet and advisor. David had fallen in love with the beautiful Bathsheba, the wife of one of his most senior generals, Uriah. In order to take her as his own wife, David ordered that Uriah be sent to the front of, a, of an attack and ordered to lead an impossible assault in which he would certainly be killed, which he was. Responsible for the death of her husband, David then imposed his will upon Bathsheba and took her as his wife. Carefully one evening, Nathan told the king an imaginary story of a recent outrage in his kingdom in which a very rich man had stolen the sheep of his poor neighbour in order to feed a visiting stranger. David was duly furious at this immoral behaviour and passed judgment that this man deserves to die and repay four times what he stole. Nathan gently replied, you are the man. At this point, David clicked and understood the story as an analogy of his own scandalous behaviour. The story cut him to the core and for days he wept, suffered and regretted his behaviour, resolving to change for the better. In a similar way, Jesus' famous story of the Good Samaritan has been enduringly influential as a powerful story which resonates in our hearts and encourages people to take responsibility for the suffering of strangers. It has functioned as a paradigm text for Western humanitarianism. All humanitarian organisations today have large communications teams which search for stories that will strike the heart of politicians and the public. These stories are carefully crafted and curated to resonate across social media and become iconic images of the importance of humanitarian norms. This year we can expect a succession of humanitarian parables about the right to water, the protection of civilians and the risks of climate change. Type 3. Deliberation and problem solving. Thinking together with the powerful about what is good and discovering the answer together is another ancient form of influencing. It is perhaps best modelled by Mencius, Mengzi, the great Confucian sage who lived in China during the terrible period of the Warring States in the 4th century BCE. Mencius travelled from one kingdom to another where he stayed at court, discussing and advising the king and his ministers on the best way to be a good king. These empathetic discussions involved rulers sharing their dilemmas and Mencius appealing directly to their hearts and to their self-interest to avoid war, prevent famine and act justly towards their people. Mencius's deliberative method did not shame and criticise his powerful interlocutors. Instead, he gently used the evidence of history to convince the mind and touch the heart, so ethically encouraging each king towards the particular duties of good kingship that would deliver what is best for them and their people. This technique of shared thinking and empathetic political problem solving is a central part of humanitarian dipl diplomacy today, especially around new problems. For example, humanitarian diplomacy around cyber warfare and new autonomous weapons has involved numerous roundtable meetings in which governments, big tech companies and humanitarians work together to understand the challenge of new methods of war and develop new norms and policy. Together they pore over moral and operational detail in a discreet and personalised approach that is rooted, Mencius-like, in mutual respect and a recognition of genuine difficulties that affect them all. Fourth type of influencing, the dripping tap. 
human beings are remarkably susceptible to repetition, which is widely recognized as one of the most effective influencing techniques. To influence people, it is often only necessary to keep repeating the same message over and over again until it is eventually believed or its believers are so many that they are overwhelming. Deliberate techniques of repetition are often referred to as the dripping tap which finally fills the bath or the stuck record which repeats the same phrase or idea over and over again until it sticks in the brain. Many activists use the repetition of facts and slogans, true and false, to brainwash their targets. In Shakespeare, this is notoriously done by the wicked Iago to Othello to defame his virtuous wife. Iago continuously drips poisonous and untrue rumour and innuendo into Othello's ear about Desdemona's supposed inf infidelity until Othello is turned mad and murderous with jealousy. More positively, many humanitarians have been steadily beating the drum around the risks of urban warfare for the last few years, constantly repeating statistics of civilian deaths and graphic descriptions of the terrible effects of bomb blasts on the human body and essential infra infrastructure. The Liberian Women's Peace Movement used repetition to extraordinary humanitarian success. Every day for months, they stood, out, stood dressed in white outside the president's house, singing for an end to the war. They then did the same at the peace negotiations in Abuja. Standing in the same place, repeating the same message, they gradually grew in numbers every day and would not budge until peace was made. Fifth and final type of influencing, the power of example. The unspoken power of example is one of the most effective forms of influence. Our mimetic nature means that if someone sets us a sufficiently powerful and inspiring example, then we will copy it. Where someone leads, people will follow. Setting an example and doing what you want others to do is a highly effective way to influence people. This often involves moving beyond words to embody your values and live out your message in actions that speak louder than words. As a humanitarian diplomat for the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, the best influence, influencing power I ever had at my disposal was the ICRC's track record of action on the ground. Politicians and government officials I met had often seen ICRC oper operations, benefited directly from its work, or heard of its reputation from people they trusted. At its best, the ICRC sets an example of neutral and life-changing humanitarian work which resonates more deeply with powerful people than any arguments I can make in a meeting. This iconic example of practical humanitarian work meant that my influencing targets were often well disposed to me before I entered the room, put out my hand and opened my mouth. The ICRC's quiet example was influencing gold in many of my diplomatic encounters and gave me an extraordinary head start as we discussed humanitarian problems new and old. Beautiful piece by Hugo. I, I want to debate some of those with him, but that'll be for another time. Final post, there were only three posts this week. Upshift, turning pressure into performance and crisis into creativity. So this is from Ben Ramalliam, uh, who's been around on the humanitarian scene uh, for a long time. He's going to a new job at the uh, British Red Cross, uh, and he's just written a book called That, Upshift. And I asked him to introduce the book. In Upshift, I set out to explore how stress, pressure and crisis can be transformed into performance and creativity through a process that I call upshifting. This book was originally inspired by my work on humanitarian innovation, but as I researched and learned, the scope expanded to explore how people have transcended pressure and crises in all realms of human experience. The book covers examples from the everyday, like the daily commute, to the epic, like space travel. 
I'd like to share three key messages with you. Message one, the inverted U-curve that links pressure and performance. A series of famous experiments from the early 20th century first identified an inverted U-curve that links pressure and performance. In a wide variety of settings, our performance in creative and problem-solving tasks actually increases with stress up to a threshold point. When we experience too much stress beyond this point, we get overloaded. It's hard to organise our thoughts and gain control of the situation. But too little stress is no good either. Below the threshold, we quickly become disengaged, demotivated and unfulfilled. In this Goldilocks zone between cognitive overload and underload, where stress is, where stress is neither too little nor too much, but just right, lies the zone of optimal performance. Here we have enough pressure and stress to keep us on our toes, but not so much that it becomes overwhelming. The zone varies for different people facing different problems in different situations. Your optimal point of stress versus performance will be different to mine, but we can all learn to better reach and maintain optimal performance under pressure. Message two, the three ingredients of upshifting are mentality, originality and purpose. Mentality is our ability to reframe the situations we face so that we feel we're taking on challenges rather than facing threats. Such reframing sets up a series of changes to the chemistry of the brain that focuses our attention and sharpens our performance. Extensive studies show that pressure can become a source of positive energy that aids performance in a whole range of settings. It enables students to better manage stress, free divers reach new records, pilots to land malfunctioning planes, and even separates Olympic champions from other elite athletes. Mentality opens the door to upshifting, but to walk through the door, we need to harness originality. Among people working in the peak performance zone, including fighter pilots, medical responders, firefighters and surgeons, there is a clear cat pattern of being able to use divergent thinking under pressure, generating creative ideas by exploring many possible solutions. Our ability to do this hinges on psychological and cognitive factors, but this is not a fixed capability. As with our ways of managing stress, we all have different starting points, but we can all also learn to be more original. Research shows that by using simple divergent thinking tools regularly, it sounds like a trip to the brain gym, we can enhance our creative thinking and it can even lead to long-term improvements in our cognitive capabilities and psychological resilience. Finally, attaining and sustaining upshifts comes down to our sense of meaning and purpose. This has a profound impact on whether and how we reach and maintain our optimal performance. Medical research has proven that a greater sense of purpose can help us live longer, happier, healthier lives. Life purpose is linked to lower incidence of acute and chronic diseases. And in situations where pressure can't be avoided, you can get people to be creative by instilling a meaningful purpose, where we have a sense that there is an important, urgent need for the work we do. Message three. The six kinds of upshifters. This is gleaned from people working in many different high pressure contexts, from humanitarian responses to emergency services and pandemic response, to the military, space exploration, surgery, even the performing arts. There is no single best way of performing under pressure, but there are six different upshift archetypes, each of which harnesses our distinctive problem solving skills, creativity, imagination in different ways. First is constructively challenging the status quo of how things are done. Second is crafting solutions based on a deep understanding of how technical and social aspects fuse together. Third is combining ideas across diverse fields. 
Fourth is connecting with the right people at the right time. Fifth is corroborating approaches, judging what's good or bad on the basis of whether it works or not. And sixth is conducting collective efforts into shared and sustained missions. I believe we can use these archetypes to democratize the very ideas of creativity and innovation, to embrace the diversity and plurality of our cognitive capabilities. Overall, in Upshift, I try to challenge the assumption that crises kill creativity. For a whole range of problems in many different settings, people are finding, managing and dealing with pressure and stress in ways that don't lower their creative abilities, they enhance them. In fact, successful innovators around the world have tapped into this to attain new levels of human and professional excellence. We now live in a world of perpetual simultaneous crises, what has been termed the polycrisis. To better manage and cope, we need to see constraints and limitations not as restrictions, but as a source of freedom. As Nobel laureate Ilya Prigogine eloquently put it, our world may be uncertain, but that uncertainty is at the very heart of human creativity. I really like that. So on that uplifting and uh, uncertain note, I will say have a great weekend. I'm off on holiday now for a week or so. So you, you're spared this podcast for a couple of weeks. But uh, have a great weekend and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye.